Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. New census data reveals an alarming increase in the rate of homelessness. In Victoria, the number of people without a home has increased by 24% over the past five years, while nationally the rate has gone up by around 5%. This raises added concerns amid growing inflation and a cost-of-living crisis, with many struggling to make ends meet. Deborah Di Natale is CEO of the Council to Homeless Persons and joins us now on the line. Deborah, thanks so much for spending some time with us on Triple R. Oh, good morning. Really happy to be here, thanks. And so what's your response to these figures? Well, we did a deep dive at the Council to Homeless Persons around what the new data is showing us, and we would um, say that now, for the first time, we've got a true state of Victoria's homelessness crisis and possibly the most accurate picture of the state problem A lot of the increase is because we collected data that we had never been able to collect before. So during the lockdown, um, and we've got to remember that this census data was taken during the lockdown, so we were able to count more people. And part of that is because people who were sleeping rough were housed in hotels during COVID and also because we had a real focus on rooming houses and we made sure that all of those numbers came up. And what we say is now that we know the extent of the problem, we really need to make sure that it's a priority in the budget. And, I mean, I I remember, you know, the the lockdowns and how really proud uh, people seem to be in Victoria for how we supported people that were, you know, sleeping rough or or homeless in that period to be able to provide housing and there's that homeless to home program in Victoria. What's happening, Deb? Are are these programs continuing or, you know, where are we at with regards to the programs that actually seem to work in that period? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I might just quickly talk about the homelessness to home program for your listeners who don't know about it. It's an extraordinary initiatives because what it does is it acknowledges that people who have been sleeping rough and have experienced chronic homelessness for many years are not going to be able to just go into a house and have that tenancy sustained unless they have the support that come with it. So homelessness to home says, yes, people who are sleeping rough, we absolutely need to get them into a house, housing first, but they need the support. And those supports really depend on a whole lot of things. And they are supporting someone in terms of their mental health challenges. If there are alcohol and drug issues, then it's a providing support around that. It's also providing support around budgeting and providing support around getting those people back into employment. So what we say at the Council of Homeless Persons is... This program we know works. We've got global evidence that it's the best way to ensure that someone is able to stay in safe, secure housing long term. And you cannot have the expectation that someone who has been sleeping rough for many years can just sustain a tenancy without those supports. So what we have is a government that's been great and invested in that and provided a whole number of people to be homed in the Homelessness to Home program. 
But what we need to see in the budget, in the next budget, and that's in our pre-budget submission, is about $47.5 million invested in that to make sure that those people who are in those homes continue to get the support, but it also grows it by about 100 a year. So we're saying grow the pool because we know there are many more people that need it and keep going with the people who are housed and ensure that they get all the supports they need long term. And what are the prospects of having that kind of funding and resourcing delivered? Because I understand that program was facing cuts by the current Victorian government. And given that we know the problem has got worse and that Homeless Sister Home, you know, did a really good job, especially through the pandemic, of giving people that support they really need to have a roof over their head. I mean, what's your sense of, of its future? Well, we would say that we trust that the government is going to look at the evidence when it makes a big investment and we've got the evidence that this really works. The other thing that often um, is said is, oh, you know, we're in a tight fiscal environment and we're really aware of that and we take a common sense approach, which is when you invest money in the front end, you're going to save long term. So what it does is you put this money up front and you're going to save money in terms of your health budget, your justice budget. We know the correlation between people who who exit prison and exit into homelessness are much more likely to end up back in prison. So let's make really good decisions for people who are experiencing this much vulnerability and keep them in their homes for as long as we can. And I, I don't want to, you know, move away from talking about homelessness specifically, Deb, but we know yeah. we are in a sort of a generalised cost of living and housing crisis, rental crisis and so forth in Victoria. Is this also interacting with um, the issues that you're, you're looking at with regards to homelessness in Victoria? Oh, for sure. I mean, we, we um, at Council of Homeless Persons really understand that there are a whole lot of structural issues that end up with, you know, people who are homeless. And, you know, you look at poverty and you think with the cost of living, that is just going to drive more and more people into poverty. And you look at the number of people that uh, we interact with who are on some type of government income support, that money is not increasing. It's already not enough to make ends meet. And yet we've now got cost of living where basics like groceries are going up, uh, petrol's going up, vacancy rates for rentals are at an all-time low, and those that are currently in rentals, the rental market is just pushing those prices up. So, yet it's going to have an impact across Victoria, no question. And, I mean, you talked a little bit about the particular circumstances in which this data was collected during Melbourne's lockdowns, which gives us, a, I suppose, a more realistic picture of the extent to which homelessness is experienced and is a real issue for people. But why is it that Victoria seems to be performing so badly on this measure? Well, that's a question that we asked ourselves as well, because to be fair to the Victorian government, it has really introduced a number of initiatives and should be proud of the fact that it got people during COVID, during the pandemic, to be able to be housed so quickly in hotels and got them into accommodation. We think there are a number of drivers to this. In particular, it was that the count happened during lockdown, so we got people that we didn't usually get. And we also, and I'm not sure if we're the only jurisdiction that that did this, but we gave the people who were counting the data 
the addresses of the rooming houses. So that means that the probably numbers have always been higher and we've always estimated that there's been an undercount anyway mm. in terms of the, the, the census. And this is probably, you know, a, a more realistic picture. So one could say that, yep, it's raised by 24%. Um, and another person might say, well, actually, maybe we had an undercount. We've had significant undercounts before. And we're not really going to know that until we get the next census data. So what we can do is we can compare from the previous one, this one, and the next one, and then we'll probably be able to give a much more accurate assessment around the numbers. But we we know that there's a housing crisis and we need to act, and these numbers support our position. And, yeah, and potentially the undercount's continuing in other states and territories where the lockdown wasn't happening during census. Anyway, we can... I wanted Absolutely. to ask you... I also wanted to ask you, you know, about what's happening federally. The Housing Australia Future Fund is um, political uh, at the moment and there's um, some crossbench senators in particular raising, um, you know, questions around how adequate it is. I mean, what's your thought about this federal fund, which, uh, uh, you know, is... Uh, I suppose it's expensive, but at the same time investing in at least 20,000 houses in the next five years. What's um, Are you thinking that that might fill some of the gaps that might be left with investment here in Victoria and other state government um, jurisdictions? Look, I hope so. Uh, we're always optimistic and we say any money that you spend in, in housing is a good outcome for the whole of the country because that means that people can get back on track and get the support they need. Uh, I really hope that Victoria gets what it needs in order to be able to meet our needs here for people who need access to those homes. We're speaking with Deborah Dean Natale, CEO of Council to Homeless Persons this morning, about new census data that reveals that the extent of homelessness has got worse in Victoria, 24% um, increase over the past five years. But as Deb has explained, that's sort of um, partly, potentially at least, a result of the more accurate counting throughout the, the lockdown period here in Victoria. And I want to ask you about the risks for particular groups as well. We know that, for example, older women have been at risk of falling into homelessness in recent years and the housing situation for, for First Nations people in particular has been an issue for a, a long time. Are there any particular kind of areas of focus that the government, Victorian government should be focusing, focusing on to target those groups who are at, at heightened risk? Uh, yes, and we, we say that there are a number of groups that are at risk uh, and, in fact, we talk about the fact that the young people, we need targeted social housing for young people We've put in a cost of what that looks like over four years. So young people are particularly at risk. Um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders, we've seen the numbers increase in that census data and that absolutely needs to be addressed. We need to stay true to the closing the gap principles and make sure that that is a priority. And one of the other areas, of course, is domestic and family violence because what we see is thousands of women in fact there was um there was a study done by equity economics a couple of years back that said nine thousand women were showing up with kids to crisis accommodation and to try and get some really safe transitional housing needs and they just weren't there so we need to address a whole lot of areas uh 
young people, older women, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders and women with children who are trying to get out of unsafe homes who are experiencing family violence. Yeah, the need, I mean, look, the need is enormous and I, I urge people to have a look at your state budget submission. Um, this is the Council to Homeless Persons. It's really, you know, easy to read and, and well laid out. And what stood out in that when I was reading through it, Deb, was um, you had a line item there on, on workforce. And, I mean, we know we've we've got workforce shortages in all sorts of um, areas, in, in education and in, in early childhood and childcare and, and um, aged care and the like. Are we also needing to address that with regard to services to people seeking homes who have been homeless for some time? Yes, and if you don't support the sector to provide the support that people need, then you're never going to be able to address the problem. So here at Council to Homeless Persons, we're really clear on let's make sure that we can create a really sustainable sector and ensure that our workforce are paid adequately and trained adequately to be able to do those jobs and that we don't create an environment of burnout and turnover, which doesn't help anyone. Absolutely. Well, let's hope that we get the change we need in this space. It's been really great having you spend some time with us this morning, Deborah. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to get our message out there. Triple R. There was an election in New South Wales over the weekend that put in place another Labor state government, painting the whole country red with just Tasmania now with a Liberal state government. One election campaign battle in New South Wales that has important and interesting implications for the rest of the country was the then New South Wales Premier's challenge to the pokies and clubs lobby there. Uh, This was over the government's plan to introduce cashless poker machine gaming. So what now for um, policies and and gambling reform under a Labor state government there in New South Wales. Um, Labor's Chris Minns won the election, you know, with a really strong majority. Um, Will it return to business as usual for pokies in the club's lobby or will uh, there be um, reform coming in New South Wales? Charles Livingstone has been watching that election but has for a long time been one of Australia's foremost gambling researchers over there at Monash University. And Charles, it's great to have you here. Good morning. Good morning. And so the change to Labor, is it going to derail the plan to introduce cashless poker machines there in New South Wales or what might happen now? Well, I mean, the the Labor Party policy is fairly limited. I mean, it it proposes a trial of a number of 500 machines, I think, which is a fairly meaningless gesture in that direction. But they have proposed to prohibit uh, political donations from poker machine clubs. They're already prohibited from commercial operators such as casinos and hotels. So they're going to ban donations from the clubs, which is quite an important step forward. That is one of their key ways of influencing political opinion and policy. Uh, And they're also going to introduce a $500 limit on how much you can put into a poker machine, which is obviously a step forward. At the moment, you can put $5,000 into new machines, and there are still a quarter of the machines in New South Wales. You can put $10,000 in at one go. So... So that, that's one of the key reasons why New South Wales is the money laundering capital of Australia. So it's not like they've uh, abandoned reform entirely, but uh, it's disappointing to see that the proposal for a cashless pre-commitment system proposed by the previous government has now fallen by the wayside, at least for the time being.
And from where you sit, Charles, I mean, did the gambling lobby lobby play a really sort of powerful role at all in the New South Wales election? Because we know they have in the past when there's been the prospect of some change and, you know, um, efforts to reduce the harm caused by poker machines and the like. There's been a very strong pushback from, from the lobby. Yeah, no, there was definitely a strong pushback. There's no question of that. And I think, you know, early on, particularly before their CEO... Well, was sacked for making inappropriate comments about the premier. Uh, it's, it's, it's. I guess you could say there's a lot of behind the scenes uh, activity from them on the on the politicians, including I think the the Labor Party. Although they deny having that sort of influence, I think that there's no doubt that they're very close to the gambling lobby, as both sides have been traditionally. So, you know, the 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 Labor Party adopted a policy I think that was going to please the gambling lobby much more than Mr Perrottet's proposal. But, you know, in reality, if you can get them out of the political donations game, that's a long way, that's a big step forward in defanging their power, if I can put it in those terms. Yeah, and I mean, is that a similar reform to what happened with property developers way back when, Charles, where I think, yeah, yeah, they they took the the sort of influence out by banning the, the donations? Yeah, I don't know how much of the influence they took out in the end, given the scandals. But if you if you look at the the trajectory, originally they banned donations from property developers, the tobacco industry, so on, and uh, commercial gambling operators. But the the big loophole there was that the clubs were able to make donations. Now with over a thousand clubs and five thousand dollar limits, that's an awful lot of money that could be directed towards political parties. So I think what what we found, though, is that there's a lot of ways that they can influence politics without necessarily being tied to donations, but certainly getting them out of that particular activity is a major step forward. I mean, they've got the ability to, uh, you know, campaign at a local level, and they did try to do that, in fact, in the Murray electorate just on the border there, where the sitting independent Helen Dalton had taken quite a strong stance, but she appears to have been re-elected quite convincingly. So... Their power in that front, I think, is gone. I mean, the real issue here is that people in New South Wales, political parties, including obviously the government, have recognised now that there is a real need for reform. Uh, And, you know, when we had the Crime Commission report last year adding to their woes by pointing out just how much money was being laundered, criminal money being laundered through these machines, I think it's pretty hard for any politician to pretend that everything's fine and that reform is not required. Yeah, and I mean, I understand that the Perite, former Perite government's uh, policy was to introduce the, the cashless machines within five years, which seems like a, a little while away anyway, but now obviously Labor was successful and they've committed to a trial of the cashless system on 500 machines. I mean, does this just kind of kick the problem down the road? What, what are they looking for in that trial and, and how long might it take if they do go ahead with changing those machines that are in existence to cashless ones? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the parameters of that trial have not been defined. I mean, Mr Min's policy says that they want to make sure the technology works and so on, but we know the technology works. In Victoria, there's a pre-commitment system already. It's not a universal one, a mandatory one. It's a voluntary one, but it's spread across all the machines in the state and it works fine. Uh, you know, the Norwegians have been doing it since 2007, I think, and Tasmania is introducing a mandatory universal pre-commitment system next year. 
So we know it works. Uh, the trial is really, I think, an excuse for kicking it down the road a bit. But having said that, uh, I think the pressure for reform is now inexorable. Uh, and certainly the crossbench is already starting to make noises about Alex Greenwich, the independent MP in the New South Wales Parliament who's had success in getting uh, dignified dying laws through, etc., has been in the press this morning saying that he's going to push hard for it. So it's not gone away. There's been progress. That's a massive uh, improvement on, on the previous position. Um, the Labor Party is obviously trying to... I guess walk both sides of the street on this to keep the gambling lobby happy but I think in the end the pressure is going to be too much to resist and I think everyone knows that gambling reform is required and it's just a matter of when. Now hopefully that will be within this term uh, if it's not then I guess you know people like me just need to keep the pressure on. <laughs> well I mean look I did hear you in different um, forms of media Charles through the campaign talking about this issue and it was huge um, and, and Charles Livingstone's with us by the way from Monash University one of our foremost gambling researchers here in Australia and yeah it was a it was a really big issue I don't know if that followed right to the end of the campaign there in New South Wales. But I did note that um, then Premier Perrottet said that he put his career on the line to take on the, the club's lobby. Um, I mean, do you think that's what lost the election for them? Or, do you, you know, there, there seem to be a lot of other issues at play um, in New South yeah, Wales. Yeah, no, look, I mean, the City Morning Herald had a poll out last week which pointed out that, um, as, as we know, I mean, everyone's concerned about gambling and its harms and money laundering. Everybody is. Almost the entire population thinks it's out of control. And there's new research, research out today from the Australian Gambling Research Centre which reports on a survey where something like three quarters of the population want gambling wound back. Uh, so I don't think there's, there's any lack of support for it, but it's not a priority issue. So for most people, the priorities are getting wages growth going, getting the cost of living down, you know, uh, getting to and from work without the train system collapsing uh, and having a healthcare system that functions. And I think for most people voted on that basis for the Labor Party, which had promised quite a lot of action on all of those fronts. Yep. So, you know, whether, whether gambling played into the vote to any significant extent seems very unlikely. Yeah, I do want to ask you about that research that's being reported on, on this morning, Charles, from the Australian Institute for Family Studies. I understand that's on uh, sort of gambling advertising on TV and, and, and that kind of thing. I'm just wondering, obviously there's been a lot of focus on pokey machines, but as you know, we're spending sort of more time online and, and that kind of thing, what's the relative harm caused by online gambling, advertising in sports and the like, compared to the, the in-person gambling done inside clubs and pubs and the like on poker machines? Yeah, so a report, or a paper, I should say, published earlier this year by colleagues from uh, Central Queensland University indicated that um, on their basis, somewhere between 51 and 57% of gambling problems are attributable to poker machines. About 20% are attributable to uh, online gambling, basically. So it's, it's a big problem. I'm not suggesting it's not, and it's growing very rapidly. But pokies remain the single biggest cause of harm in Australia. Now, having said that, um, it's much, it is actually much easier to regulate the online sector because it's already digitised and the Commonwealth has a series of reforms in place. And based on the, based on the research that was revealed this morning, I mean, over half of the population would like to see gambling ads prohibited until at least 10.30 at night. 
So anyone who watches the football, as I do, can tell you that as soon as 8.30 rolls around now, the, the ads just rock up one after another. Mm. And, you know, if you're worried about kids seeing it, you can't sit there and watch the football with your kids. And, you know, 8.30 in some cases is barely quarter time. So you're not going to send the kids off. <laughs> yeah. It's like you'd be so popular, wouldn't you? Yeah, you'd be really popular. So I think, you know, the issue is we need to, to be stopped so that, at, at the very least, so that kids are not being force-fed this stuff. And there's also evidence in this survey today which suggests that uh, young people are actually quite persuaded by these advertisements and that um, many of them report taking their first bet after watching these sorts of ads and seeing the incentives offered and so on. Mm. I mean, look, there was a sense that, you know, if the, the reforms happened and the cashless poker machine reforms happened in New South Wales because they overperform or outperform, you know, most parts of the world with regards to their their losses on, on the pokies and, you know, together with the Tasmanian initiatives that we could get some momentum here in, in Victoria and other jurisdictions as well. But without that change in, in New South Wales, do you think we might still see progress here in Victoria, Charles? Uh, they're very different jurisdictions. I think, you know, the Andrews government has been fairly friendly towards the gambling industry, but having said that, it's nowhere near the size and the scale of the industry in New South Wales. So, you know, people in New South Wales um, have lost over $8 billion in 2022 on pokies in pubs and clubs. That's an awful lot of money compared to Victoria, where people lost $2.6 billion. Now, $2.6 billion is also a hell of a lot of money, yes. and it would be yeah. much better off in people's uh, bank accounts or paying their mortgages or whatever. But having said that, I think the priority for reform has to be New South Wales. But I also think that there will there is certainly a, a lot of movement for reform in Victoria, and I think I'm sort of fairly optimistic we'll see some in the not too distant future. Well, it's been great speaking to you once again on the show this morning, Charles. Thanks so much, and hope to chat again soon. Take care. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. And we're very pleased to have our Triple R Freedom of Information correspondent, we just gave her that title, uh, journalist Petra Stock, back in the house. Uh, she, last year she educated and entertained us with her various Freedom of Information citizen investigations and stories and uh, successes, dead ends, uh, and it's great to have you back, Petra. Good morning. Oh, good morning. And there's been a lot happening uh, with regards to Freedom of Information. Uh, you brought to our attention that the federal FOI commissioner just quit and that here in Victoria we're ramping up what we're doing with regards to freedom of information at that level. I mean, maybe, yeah, fill us in on what's happening federally. How come the FOI commissioner quit? I mean, it's quite funny. There's been quite a lot happening in FOI, which is rare. It's such a slow-moving kind of This is of how beast. come we're top of the pops here at Triple R. <laughs> That's how come we've got a correspondent. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like... The first FOI commissioner we've had in seven years, apparently, was a, a, an office at the federal level that sat empty for seven years. We appointed a new commissioner, Leo Hardiman, apparently just before the last federal election, so March last year, and he's just quit. He's, um, fr from what we read, he sort of posted on LinkedIn about his reasons for quitting. Seems like... 
Um, he had a good go at trying to improve the timeliness of the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner's processes for reviewing um, freedom of... So their role is when someone's FOI request is rejected or they don't get all the information they want, people can seek a review and it turns out there's just a massive backlog in those reviews. They're taking years, in some cases up to five years. And the new commissioner, one year into a five-year term, has obviously just thrown his hands up and feels like he can't improve the system, which is worrying. And so, so on your reading, was it a case of there's just sort of too much work here, it's, it's too much of a mess, or is it I actually don't have the power to fix this system for the better. It seemed like he was saying the latter. Um, he had done some internal work to try and like make those processes happen faster, um, but he seemed to be indicating in those comments that certain things were out of his power to be able to address. And I imagine that fixing what sounds like a you know a, a broken system or at least part of the system sounds broken fixing it wouldn't be the only job a commissioner does so there's probably other things to do are, are we likely to get someone reappointed do you think to that role who might be able to operate in a broken system or try again? I don't know. I certainly hope so I mean um, we've subsequently learnt that there's something like nearly 600 reviews like the backlog is nearly 600 cases full and some of those something like 42 of those are five years old so people who'd asked for a review of something you know back in 2018 2017 and it's still still haven't got any kind of result it would be really nice to think that we could actually fix this What what are the nature of some of the things that they're asking about well, we know that um, ex-Senator Rex Patrick has a bunch which he's talked about. Um, one of those was about Snowy 2.0, which of course we know is a massive infrastructure project that is facing some significant difficulties now. So it'd be interesting to know um, what that was about. And another one which I found quite amusing, which is actually someone I know had put in a request back in 2018 for what happens when the monarch dies. And of course, in that time, um, the Queen did actually die. But my understanding is that he is still interested in getting an answer on that. Um, Yeah, I, I would be interested in an answer to that request, it seems like fairly, you know, useful information. All those changes that happened after the Queen died mostly seemed surprising. Mm. Would be, and in terms of the review process itself, um, like to your knowledge, is are they in like a queue? Do they kind of go through them one by one, or are they moved up in terms of priorities? How do they actually kind of work through them or not work through them? <laughs> I don't know too much about that, except that I know that. That office of the Australian Information Commissioner, which still exists even though the Commissioner himself is res- has resigned, I do know that they're now prioritising some of those very old mm. reviews, which is a good thing, I think. Well, I, I, I did read, uh, and I think he's a bit, a bit cheeky, um, former Senator Rex Patrick, saying, well, if you put one in now, you might still be waiting till 2028. I mean, the prospect of that in, in the so-called information age is it, it is ludicrous, actually. 
It's crazy. And if you think about the reasons why people might be submitting these requests in the first place, I mean, the vast majority are people seeking information about themselves, um, which, you know, might be helping them with some sort of dealing with government process. Um, uh, in Victoria, you know, it's police, justice, you know, people wanting information to help them navigate these processes about themselves. Um and also journalists who, you know, if you get information for a story catcher, <laughs> yeah. you'd be hard-pressed to sell the news value of something five years on. I would think so. I mean, can we just backtrack for a moment? Why do we not have an FOI commissioner for seven years? Well, it's one of those, um, I guess, sneaky things that governments sometimes do when they're not super interested in a topic progressing. They can just not do anything. So in this case... Um, when Abbott was Prime Minister, um, the office was vacant and they just never appointed anyone. So, you know, we've seen that happen uh, in a bunch, you know, in state and federal level when government simply doesn't want to progress an issue, they can Mm. just... You know, the do nothing is quite effective. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's watch this space for a, a new commissioner being appointed by by this government federally. But what um bring it let's let's talk about Victoria and you know what's happening here in Victoria. I I understand that we're starting to see more pressure come on government to release information and also in a timely way. Well, I think that's quite heartening in contrast to what we're seeing at the federal level. We're seeing in Victoria we have a similar office called the Office of the Victorian Information Commissioner which plays that same role of you know, a review oversight body for the FOI system. And their commissioner, Sven Blumel, he really seems to be stepping up and putting pressure back on departments to fulfil their role in FOI in a faster, more effective way. So we've seen at the end of last year, since I last spoke to you, a couple of proactive investigations by the Victorian commissioner One was into Vic Forests um, and how they dealt with an individual's request for information about themselves or didn't deal with it. Um, And the other was into a group of agencies and departments which had a really large backlog and were being really slow at dealing with requests. So I like to see that. I think it's good that the the commissioner is putting a bit of pressure back on departments. Yeah, speaking here with our very own... Freedom of Information correspondent Petra Stock for the first time this year talking about various issues in FOI with the uh, federal FOI commissioner stepping down after just one year in the role and some stuff happening in Victoria as well. So with that that pressure that's kind of building in Victoria from the state FOI commissioner, is that directed at particular departments who aren't really doing what they should be in terms of releasing information? Yeah, so the Vic Forest case was really interesting because they looked at this one individual who initially put in one freedom of information request seeking information about themselves. And what the commissioner found was Vic Forest basically played a really obstructive role. And it's actually the under the law, under the system, the onus is really on departments and agencies to assist people making FOI requests. Um, and in that case, Vic Forest didn't do that. In fact, what the commissioner said was they 
either didn't they didn't phone the person instead they sent these really complicated legal sounding letters um, which the commissioner said would be difficult for anyone to understand what to do with um, and basically said they said that's not good enough um, and I think that's great because I think like because I've done a lot of FOI requests you really do see this really big range of ways that departments respond and it doesn't seem to be driven by um, any kind of uh, sort of political goal or anything. It's just a um, different approaches they take to FOI. Some are amazing, really helpful, will phone you, will help you revise your request so that they can then proceed to find the information for you. And then at the other end of the spectrum, similar to the Vic Forests, um, you get agencies that don't respond, that send you these letters um, that sort of flag really big costs and that that's very off-putting. Wow. And it's, I mean, it's interesting then if we, you know, stick to the Victoria case, if someone has put in an FOI request in and getting that extreme end of or that end of the spectrum where it's unhelpful, confusing, expensive, things like that, is it to the the Victorian FOI Commissioner Sven Blumel that they go to get that reviewed now? Because it sounds like they're interested in hearing these stories. Yeah, I mean, I would always encourage people. I personally have found OVIC to be super helpful, even just to phone them and ask for advice when you get something weird like that. Um, and also for that formal review, um, they do seem to be kind of, yeah, really it's not following taking five up. years. It sounds like it's less less time. And so, I mean, with regards to evening that out, that, that you know, from one extreme to the other, is there a sense that that might happen that we'll get a more uniform approach here in Victoria to the way that these are dealt with, or is it really kind of department or personality driven by the person who's in the job? Yeah, I don't know what it would take to get departments to, you know to be more consistently good. <laughs> um, my understanding, though, is other states, they have a different um, law, which is more around proactive release. So if someone wants information, say, about themselves, the law actually requires, um, in those states, the department to release the information without the person having to go through this FOI system. Mm. So maybe there are options that can push things in in sort of the direction of more release, quicker release, less bureaucratic kind yeah. of hurdles. And, I mean, we're, we're seeing uh, the sort of very proactive approach from the FOI commissioner here in Victoria with the federal commissioner stepping down after just a, a year in the role. What do you think might happen there? I mean, does that provide some kind of hope for change or you know, the extent of the problem that he's revealed is also a cause for concern as well. Well, I guess um, it's definitely cause for concern. Um, Rex Patrick has actually got some sort of a case in the federal court um, taking a different approach to trying to resolve this situation. But um, I do understand that when the commissioner was appointed, it was quite a strange process as well in that... Um, there had been sort of a merits-based selection process and it was one of these cases where 
Leo Hardiman hadn't applied for the role but was then sort of appointed. So maybe if if we have um, a new commissioner appointed through a more kind of rigorous process, yeah, I mean... Might be a different outcome. We'll see, I suppose. It's got to be possible to improve the situation. I love the optimism. And, I mean, we should check in on some of your more recent FOI requests, Petra, because we love your enthusiasm here. And uh, and also this idea that information released years after it was most relevant, let's keep it newsworthy, hey? Um, <laughs> so what have you found out with regards to um, re- uh, information from the health department um, about the effectiveness of primary school mask wearing in the pandemic period when the sort of younger kids uh, were required to wear them, I think down to year three, and also the effectiveness of, of um, rats or, you know, testing ahead of going to school. Like what did you find out when you put in some questions regarding that? So this is, a, you know, perfect case of, you know, following up on something that most of us have sort of We've moved left on. it in our wake actually, but no, no, it's very important. <laughs> but um, obviously when students went back to school in at the beginning of last year in Victoria, we had some of the most stringent measures. So students right down to grade three were mandated to wear masks and actually were required to do that much longer than adults or anyone else. Um, we also had the rollout of air purifiers in schools. Uh, students were asked to do um, tests, rat tests, twice a week. So there was all these things happening in schools. So that was one where I was just purely interested to know, what, are we actually going to assess whether or not any of these are effective? Um, and so if people are interested, there's a story on Cosmos magazine um, which includes the results of the FRI request so people can see the documents that were released. But what I found through that was actually the department was collecting a huge amount of information on cases, by year level, on parent views about rat testing and masks, um, also vaccines. And they had done this sort of analysis which they suggested um, meant that masks were reducing cases by 23%, although the experts that I spoke to had a number of questions about how the department had gone about doing that analysis. But really overall it shows governments were collecting all this data, people were being asked to do the all these things um, to have their kids back to school. Why wouldn't they just release that and make that available so people could at least feel like, oh, the government is checking in on yeah. Or next time when – if let's never next go back there, but next time, <laughs> if there is a next time, we understand the benefit of this or whatever, whatever, whatever the result is. But what's your sense of what that might be used for? I mean, if it wasn't intended to be made – public what was the intention of collecting all that information I mean was it sort of stored and properly organized so you could see that data really easily so they had did have these sort of monthly reports where they were gathering together both the case data the survey data um, and then it was clear when the government finally decided to remove the mandated requirement for masks that this analysis formed part of Mm. that decision making But none of us knew about that Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I guess personally 
I think I'm glad that they were collecting some sort of data. They were trying to understand um, the value of these different measures, but uh, would be nice to be kind of trusted as a community with that information ourselves. Yeah. There are a few gaps too. Um, actually, the reason I initially uh, put in an FOI request about this was when there was that big rollout of air purifiers, you know, this one in this room yep, today. still there. <laughs> um, when there was that big rollout of air purifiers, a lot of people asked Brett Sutton, the Chief Health Officer, well, will you do some sort of study on this? And he had indicated on Twitter that, yes, he would, but actually that was one of the gaps mm. in this data collection, which I find quite bizarre. Oh, they weren't studying... So I don't know if this is working to keep me safe from Dylan. Is well, that what you're we've been me? doing this for a while. You know, so <laughs> we're pretty good, aren't we? I think we? we're okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nothing's transferred between no, us. No, <laughs> over eight or nine years. No, I, think, yeah. no, I don't even learn anything from him. <laughs> <laughs> um, and anything else, Petra, before we let you go? Any other irons in the fire? Well, I've faced a few of those roadblocks that, you know, are obviously quite common in the system. I had one last week where something from way back in 2021 that was going to go to VCAT. Um, another, oh, another so co- committed to this. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> another COVID story, but they just, and it was going to be in July this year, but they I just sent me a letter, which I don't really know what to do with, which was, we don't have a VCAT member available to look at this issue and That's I have that. no idea okay. what happens next. Stay tuned, <laughs> This everyone. is a cliffhanger. <laughs> That's right. Next time 2024. On... <laughs> we'll get you back sooner than that. Thank you, Petra. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.